so this episode, when we imagined it, we thought it was fairly tight and controlled. We were going to talk about uh, a paper we wrote mm-hmm. or in the contents of it. So it was like a predefined object. Mm-hmm. Um, and then turns out it's actually quite ambitious because it turns out we're basically talking about the history of uh, architectural ideology in academia for basically the last 70 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the relationships between that, the evolution of that ideology and um, the material conditions in which academic work and professional work in architecture is done, right? Yeah, and there's a there's an added meta dimension to it too because we're talking about these issues historically, um, and we're also going to be talking about the context of writing this paper and how it was basically blocked from publishing in the end, blocked yeah. from being included. Um, so essentially, we are going to be do what the episode ends up being is a structural critique of how everything that's wrong with the way architects look at the world is based on where their money comes from mm-hmm. and how that those transformations create the conditions for all of the current mistakes. Yeah. And how us talking about it got us censored. Yeah, and how difficult it is to actually discuss this history and the contradictions it puts architectural academic work in. Yeah. Architectural yeah. work in general, but we're going to be speaking specifically about uh, architecture theory and and kind of academic discourse. Yeah, in this, um, and it's it, it's basically a story about censorship. Um, we have reason to believe that our essay was blocked uh, since the the guest editors of the of the journal. Never had any problems with it, but uh, but someone else came. No, in. They, they invited us knowing. They invited what the us content knowing our content. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was it was quite funny uh, and quite paradigmatic of the current situation in which cultural institutions or like institutions in general in the cultural fields, uh, academic and uh, scholarly and uh, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, including you know, museums, yeah, yeah. media, yeah. You know, platforms of various kinds. Um, the current crisis of the neoliberal regime in general uh, finds an expression in, these, uh, in the institutions of neoliberal culture. Mm-hmm. And these institutions are under significant pressure by f- under the current political uh, context. Yeah, and they have difficulty dealing with that uh, pressure. They try to find ways of articulating the current political uh, needs, but necessarily under within and within the limitations of their own institutional forms and uh, foundational characteristics, which necessarily is always limited and have difficulty dealing with what we think we are trying to do, which is structural institutional critique, yeah. which by definition is difficult to be accepted by institutions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so uh, this is about a story that happened uh, more than half a year ago. I'm not exactly sure anymore. <laughs> <laughs> It was before the summer. I'm in extreme COVID time dilation. Yes, uh, that's true. <laughs> it was definitely before last summer. Yeah, because the theme was uh, theory, we thought we'd discuss 
I mean, our kind of critical work, critique of architectural ideology has gone through all kinds of different, you know, uh, arenas, yep. different kinds of objects. And this time we thought we'd, we'd look at academia directly and specifically theoretical discourse, academic discourse, the role of discourse, the connection between academic discourse and like the profession of architecture. Uh, so we basically wrote an essay giving a genealogy of how the discipline became, how the academ- academic side became what it is today. Right. Um, and how far it's moved from like professional yeah. training. Essentially, we tried to provide a history of how theory became theory in the way in which it is understood today. Yeah. How the production of discourse became a sort of autonomous practice, um, which competes uh, for space in the uh, um, academic markets, in the discipline in general, um, and how that has evolved over time, and how there has been periods in which discourse was central, and periods in which discourse was not really particularly important, yeah. and how that essentially maps into what effectively are the material conditions of architectural production in each moment. Uh, where is the money coming from? How yeah. are architects being paid? Yeah. What are the jobs available? And that effectively over time, and how that obviously is defined by macroeconomic conditions, by the transition from the welfare state to neoliberal forms, um, which is dialectical and complicated, um, and we explored all of that. We explored the 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 numbers of uh, employment, numbers of uh, production, of enrollment, uh, funding, um, research funding, etc., and so on. Uh, and we were attempting to link, like you do, do, like do that kind of stuff that like Marxists are supposed to do, which is <laughs> try to figure out why do you think and say what you think and say on the basis of where is your money coming from? <laughs> yeah. The Marxist critique of ideology is, in essence, the science of ad hominem. Right. You, like, you, uh, all, all this shit about, like, logical fallacies, internet nerd debate shit nonsense is bullshit. There's nothing wrong with uh, logical fallacies as long as they're not fallacies. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, like the, my favorite fallacy, obviously, is ad hominem. Attack the person saying the thing instead of attacking the thing they're saying. Except that it's not instead. It's in relation to. Or in rather, you cannot understand what someone is saying if you don't understand what they are. Yeah. And you can't understand of what they are if you don't understand what they want, yeah. what their immaterial interests are. Yeah. Um, so essentially, we were making a systematic relation of the transfer- ideological transformations in the architectural field to the material transformations on uh, investment in architecture-associated economic sectors yeah. to end up in the complete autonomization of academia from professional practice that we live in today because, for obvious reasons, since the economic crash of 2008 and now again under COVID it's going to be even worse, uh, there's no real substantial investment in uh, the real estate. Like the financial sector doesn't need the real estate anymore. Yeah, there's basically way fewer jobs 
in architecture. Yeah. It's a part of like a long-term uh, transformation of the building industry and the role of the architecture profession within it, uh, which goes back decades. Um, the increasing role of developers, of different kinds of, you know, uh, contractors and construction managers and different kinds of firms that take over aspects of the management of a yep. building project. And then what we detailed in the in the text was also the major shift from a public building sector that employed hundreds of architects uh, in huge firms like the London County Council. Not, not hundreds of architects, tens well, of thousands. But I mean like the London County Council had hundreds of architects in Yeah, the, the London County Council was the largest architectural office in the world. Yeah, in the 50s. In the 50s. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the construction of the welfare state uh, from the uh, late forties onwards, in the in in Europe, in Western Europe, vastly expanded uh, the production of architects themselves, in the sense of it vastly it created free mass access to higher education, yeah. which produced in architecture vast masses of art. There were more architects than ever ever before, and yet there was no unemployment because these mass architects were necessary, they were part of a systematic approach to producing that which was socially necessary for the construction of the welfare state itself at a macroeconomic level. And this implied um, the construction of the infrastructural uh, base of all sorts of public services and Millions of guaranteed access and to housing. Of, yeah, millions and millions of council homes. Millions of millions of council homes. Um, schools, hospitals. Loads of schools, loads of healthcare centers, loads of hospitals, loads of everything of this kind. Uh, mass transit systems as well, like the urban planning was also. New uh, towns. New towns. Uh, Large-scale planning for improving the material conditions of life of the majority of the population in, 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 in a context where unemployment was practically reduced to zero, not just for architects, but in general, in Western Europe in general, in capitalist Western Europe, but it was highly regulated and maintained in this way that ensured this. And it had a very strong public sector uh, in many countries controlling strategic sectors of the economy, um, like the whole eter eternal discussion in the UK about privatization versus nationalization of the railways, right? Like mm -hmm. transport and telecommunications, strategic sector of the economy, uh, because it conditions all others, uh, et cetera, and so on. Um, and th this production was public investment, and the architects were public workers. They worked for the state in public offices, municipal scale and at the national scale. All this starts obviously to deteriorate uh, kind of in the late 60s into the 70s with the economic crisis, uh, stagflation, fuel crisis. As Marxists, we read this uh, not as an exogenous shock related to like fuel shortages, but to a long term decline in the profit rate um, after all the years of expansion and growth after, after the Second World War. Uh, and it's in this context that policy begins to shift, including with labor governments in the UK, 
towards um, away from council housing production, away from public ownership of housing, and towards privatization and a, and a, and a ownership private ownership model, right. Right. which culminates in fa- famously the right to buy under Thatcher. Yeah, um, in seventy nine, I think Thatcher's elected in seventy nine, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Thatcher in seventy nine, Reagan in eighty one. Right. For some reason, my brain always says Thatcher, eighty one. It it took many years for for all this like these millions of council homes to be privatized uh, at like discounted rates, privatized largely to people who lived in them, who had the funds uh, from years of you know welfare state support and yeah the rising living standards and consumption capacity that that all entailed. Uh, so right to buy was quite popular actually, and over a number of years, a lot of housing was privatized, including again under Labour under Blair. Yeah, just to give you a, an idea of the numbers of this, the last great uh, peak of public housing construction in the UK was in 1968. Um, in 68, um, around 150,000 dwellings were completed uh, in the public sector. The private sector produced around 100,000. This is within that year. It's kind of a continuation of a long trend. Uh, public production also had like slumps and spikes, but it was generally fairly high and above uh, the private sector. The private sector was also fairly high. This was a time of economic prosperity, let's call it that. Uh, there was public housing construction, but there was also an increased increasing living standards, increased salaries, increased access to higher education that elevated uh, large sections of the working class to what you we might call middle class, a middle class condition where, which also allowed the private sector construction to grow within the welfare state form. Uh, and in fact, quite interestingly, there was more private construction back then than there is now. Right. Um, but there was also much more public construction that, regu- that by its very presence and its low cost regulated the prices in the private sector but by competing with them. Um, um, I just wanted to insert in here too, though, that like while there was a degree of affluence in the working class in this period, there was also a growing split between sectors of the working class. Like the failure of full employment was becoming really evident yeah. even in the 60s. Yeah. And, and that transformed the way in which how public housing was perceived as well. Yeah, exactly. So you get estates that are sort of divided between quote-unquote sink estates where people were like, you know, falling into poverty, there was lack of poor maintenance of the, of the buildings. The estate seen as, a, as a, a place of kind of decline, social and economic decline uh, which fed into the whole narrative about the failure of council housing and public housing in general. And then there were other estates which did not have this dynamic and which were you know, actually refurbished uh, and became like sites of private investment uh, and yep. public-private partnership and, and right. redevelopment. So you get a, kind of a, a split in the, the way estates are functioning in this time. Um, so you actually, like you get increasing poverty in many cases, but you also have a degree of affluence yeah. uh, that, that enables this privatization. Yeah, you have the beginning of the, uh, the dissolution of the welfare state 
which is the beginning of what we today understand as generally frame under the umbrella of economic inequality. Uh, you have a kind of a top 20% of society that is becoming more affluent. You have a bottom 20% of society that is becoming less affluent over time. Um, and increasingly, the, uh, the, the, notion, the very notion of public housing shifts from what, what it was in the 50s, which is it's a, it's a new model, it's a diff new different model for providing housing socially. It's not about, uh, it's not like an emergency mechanism to house the poor. It's, it's something that is, should be, would become widespread and generalized and even universalized as the way in which societies produce and provide housing. Public sector housing is just the new way of doing housing, which will yeah. decommoditize the housing sector entirely, hopefully. Of course, in a welfare state framework, a capitalist welfare state, that was never really possible. Uh, but this, this was kind of the, the notion that uh, the left had at the time, even if it was social democratic. Um, they're, they're the, the ideal that they were attempting to move towards was something more similar to what was actually happening on the socialist side of the equation, where all housing was public housing, period. Um, what um, ends up happening as this growth of inequalities and this um, kind of internal breaks in the working class where sections are elevating, being elevated to a middle class and sections are becoming impoverished again, uh, and then employment starts growing and becoming structural, especially in the during the 70s, is that the notion of public housing starts being seen as explicitly as um, like charity for the poor. Yeah. It's not a new way of doing housing. It's the it's a safe like a, a it's it's a it's part of the social safety network. If you can't make it in the market and you fall, you won't fall below a certain level because there's a crappy uh, social housing flat uh, there for you and you won't be homeless. Yeah, and this had always been a yeah, debate largely represented by a difference between uh, labor approaches and Tory approaches. Yeah. Um, labor approach in its best and most radical yeah. versions was that council housing should be the model of housing in general. Yeah. And the Tory approach is it's basically charity, yeah, uh, maintaining like the bottom level of the. It's just yeah. preventing extreme total poverty, yeah. and that. But but that the Tory approach has become the universal perception of public housing today. Yeah, yeah. Like there's all all of the mainstream Labour uh, Party today perceives public housing in that in that light. Uh, Thatcher won. But it, we're actually gonna. In our next episode, we're actually going to have an interview with a housing activist. Yes, we um, are. We are diversifying our model, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're going to have our first interview. Uh, so maybe we should uh, transition to what happened to the discipline as a result of this, and yes. we'll come. We'll, we'll discuss yes. all this housing yes. stuff in yes. much more detail. Yes, yes. So without uh, this public sector client. Uh, that started to decline uh, in the 70s, what, what did architects do? They couldn't get the same jobs in uh, public offices? There was no shrinkage immediately of the public sector funding in higher education. 
Yeah, that's an important. There's a, an asymmetry going on. There's there. an asymmetry, exactly. And when the cuts in public education come in, they are being compensated by the uh, increased incomes of the upper sections of the middle class, of, of the middle class in general and particularly right, its upper right. sectors. So when free education of, ends um, and working class people cease to have access to higher education to the same extent that they had before, there's a broader, there's a larger middle class that can afford tuitions. Yeah, basically uh, like even though you can't get free education, your parents have enough wealth Yes. to pay for their children's education. Yes, and for a for model. a for a couple generations these middle classes could get that wealth. The yeah. new younger generations were getting that wealth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um and so there hasn't been a significant uh collapse in the numbers of uh enrollment in architectural education even though there has been a systemic collapse. On in the numbers of jobs available, there was a systemic collapse in the '70s, which created the crisis that pr produced the kind of a, the reorganization of the discipline in that period. And of course, there is a new crisis today. But in between, there was a there was a massive uptick. Yeah. Uh, in the high point of real estate speculation, uh, what's called in the UK the Big Bang, right? The financialization boom, uh, begun by Thatcher and continued by Blair, um, but also seen around the world in the explosion of real estate investment. Um, I guess it started in the West, but then expanded uh, around the world. Um, but as it was, it was really beginning to be evident in, in the 80s as uh, economies, Western economies shifted from industrial production Towards financial speculation, real estate as basically yeah. neoliberalism yeah. took over. Yeah. Uh, investment in real estate became a fairly safe and profitable source of yeah. source of profit. Yeah, and for those decades, essentially late 1970s until the uh, late 2000s, the real estate sector was the core uh, pillar of uh, the financial sector. Yeah. And you can see it at, at uh, through the role of mortgages. Obviously, we all understand this from the 2008 crash, the structural role that mortgages played. But you also see it in the Bilbao effect. Uh, you see it in uh, the role of uh, cultural facilities yeah. uh, and tour tourist industries and in basically just real estate speculation in general. It's kind of interesting how it... it, it if you think about what is like the paradigmatic building that represents architecture, capital A, yeah. up until the 1960s is a, is a, a, a block of flats yeah, yeah. in it. Yeah, for sure. And after, after the 1980s, it's a museum. Yeah. There's a kind of a radical, clear sh programmatic shift in what architecture capital A means that just can be identified in this way. Yeah. And yeah, what is the it museum? Was like, it was like a church, then it was like a palace, right? Then it was a block of flats, and then a museum. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's kind of hilarious because obviously the the museum is just a return to the palace because yeah, museums are in palaces. Um, but the um, the the funny thing here is that the um, 
when it is a block of flats, it means that architects are actually designing the buildings where everybody lives. Like architecture is doing shit for everybody. Yeah. It's thinking about society at large. Society at large. Social dynamics. Yes. Crisis of housing. And the working class, if we're going to be very clear in Marxist terms, (laughs) it's producing uh, architecture for the working class. These block of flats obviously represents more than just the flats. It represents, as we were saying, all of the infrastructure of welfare state or of, I, I don't know, like, would you call it the equivalent of welfare state in socialism because the same phenomenon is happening in, on the eastern side of the equation and the same phenomenon was happening uh, as the very mode of like colon, post, post-colonial nation building and development in recently liberated uh, new, na- new nations yeah. in Africa, South Asia and in Latin America as well. Um, although there was until, certain- until the coups. Until all the coups, of course, which started fairly quickly. Um, the CIA did not like the blocks of flats uh, <laughs> uh, that Nkrumah uh, was going to build in Ghana. Um, and therefore um, decided to prevent all of the evils that uh, plague uh, the consciousness of um, uh, postmodern Western architects. Uh, from plaguing the lives of all of the poor African people who wanted flats yeah. and without knowing how horrible that would be for them, according to, uh, what's his name? Charles Jenks. Charles Jenks. <laughs> yeah, Jane Jacobs, Charles Jenks. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, the CIA, fortunately, the CIA was there to prevent all of the poor colonized peoples of the world from suffering the same fate. Yeah, there might have been... A, Architectural Council of Freedom. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um, at this at this point, basically, like in the eighties, as the real estate market tar- starts to take off, increasingly there is work again for architects building now in the private sector, obviously rather than the public sector, and now in things like museums, uh, uh, condos. Um, the thing but, is, the museum is a facade to hide. The, the condo. Right. Like, why is it a museum? It's because it's the public investment. It's still a, pu- it's a public work. The, the churches, palaces, blocks of flats, museums, these are... These are all public works. These are all public yeah. works. These are, this is public investment by the state or whatever passes for the state. Uh, it's closer to the figure of the state in any given historical context. Um, and this is absolutely key because it... It moves from blocks of flats because they're built by the state to museums because museums are built by the state and the blocks of flats aren't anymore. Yeah. The museum is built by the state. It raises the land values around it and then the private sector uses that and builds their own private blocks of flats. Architecture capital A shows off the museum so that it doesn't have to show off the private blocks of flats that, that are the real shit that's going to happen happening yeah. around it. Now we have a we have a longer form argument about how like 60s and 70s architecture basically presaged the star architecture of the Bilbao effect and of the like the post-critical 80s 90s nonsense that everyone basically kind of agrees was bad in some way. Yeah, like, or like we, we are, we are, we we are identifying here two core moments of crisis of employment. 
Yeah. One in the 70s in the transition for where there was a collapse of public employment and architects are trying to figure what the alternative uh, forms of getting money are going to be. And then one again today, which is yet yeah. to be solved, which is created by the crisis of the neoliberal form, the neoliberal um, model. Um, what do these crises do to the discipline? To the profession, so this is a relationship between the profession and the discipline, right? Yeah. The profession is in crisis in the sense that there is a crisis of employment. There's less architecture to be done. So there's less jobs for our professional architects. But the discipline is still going on. And especially since the academic numbers have not shrunk, the discipline is as strong as it was before because academia, like the, the center of the discipline is education, is where the discipline functions. Yeah. Uh, with a relative degree of autonomy from practice, from the profession. So when there is this crisis, the thing that grows is precisely this relative autonomy of academia. And this takes the form of increased discourse production. So this is the era of theory with a capital T identified in all the you know, textbooks and, and journals like uh, obviously, K. Michael Hayes' the architecture theory since 1968, which basically covers this period from the late 60s up to the like early 90s. And that's a really funny title, by the way, because the the book the title is Architecture Theory since 1968, but then the first text is from 1969. It's the Fourie's. Yeah, it's uh, the Fourie's critique on architect or architectural ideology. Yeah. Um, so why why is it 68? It's because he wanted to fetishize May 68. Of course, he wanted to make the political connection, even though literally he has nothing in 68. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, could, he didn't want to say architectural theory in 1969. That sounds stupid. <laughs> so, I mean, you also get oppositions, obviously. You get figures like yeah. Aldo Rossi, Peter Eisenman, Bernard Schumi, uh, Venturi, Denise Scott Brown, Kulhas. Uh, eventually, Zaha, Tolerance Cafe. Zaha is a generation, generation sort of later. a generation later, but it's a, but she she yeah. starts quite young, so it's uh, fairly quick. But we 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 tend to all of the people that become well, they are all inspired by Soviet architecture, linked to my PhD thesis, uh, and um, and uh, they become. I don't know that they. I don't know that they read your PhD thesis. <laughs> um, no, uh, and they. Um, are all these are the people the names that become canonized as um, uh, what 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 what's the guy called like de deconstru deconstructive architecture? Yeah, like uh, associated with Derrida. Yes, uh, which is kind of a, a play that um, what's his name? The name of the serial American consumer of European avant-garde. Eisenman. No, 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 no. The the older guy, the guy who did the two most important. Philip Johnson? Philip Johnson, two most important evil exhibitions of architecture in, in the 20th century. Uh, International the where, style? The recategorized mo European modernism as the international style. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the one who recategorized the postmodern neo avant garde of the 70s yeah. uh, it, as deconstructivist architecture because they were all inspired by Soviet constructivism and also they liked Derrida. Yeah. So there you go. So and Johnson was a was a Nazi sympathizer at at one point in his career also. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a paradigmatic like a blue bra so blue Paul, brown alliance. And so was Paul <laughs> Demand. And so was Paul Demand leading de deconstruction philosophy. Right, 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 right. Anyway, we tend to think, especially 
like those of us who went to school during the reign of star architecture and like the dominance of cool house and like American East coast stuff. Um, we, we tend to think of this era as the post-critical post-theoretical, uh, star architecture era. Yeah. I mean, maybe you'd, you'd read like, um, Deleuze and Guattari, yeah. but that's like the exception that proves the rule. Uh, and we would definitely distinguish that era from the previous era the glorious seventies. The glorious seventies of critical architecture, which you might associate with some uncritical postmodern stuff, like Venturi's. You wouldn't really count as critical per se, but you get all the. Venturi's earlier though. You start sixties. Yeah, they all they all do start sixties. They don't start writing in the sixties. Most Rossi, of them, I Rossi think. did. Rossi, yeah, yeah, the Italians are slightly ahead. Yeah, yeah, and I guess Venturi is Italian. <laughs> <laughs> The decades, I mean, the decades are an artificial uh, construct onto this. Yeah. But in any case, we, we, tend to, we tend to think of an era of critical and often politically <coughs> minded architecture discourse in the 70s that you get when you read the first half of Hayes' book, of Hayes' architecture theories in 68, and then a post-critical uh, kind of technophilic discourse that takes off in the, in the 80s into the 90s. So you think like there's no connection between Aldo Rossi and Frank Gehry. Yeah. Uh, this is an argument that we make. Make. That, yes, there is. Uh, yes, there is. It's the core <laughs> connection. It's the core connection. It's the material reality of the discipline. Gary is the truth or is the built truth of Rossi's words. Yeah. The Bilbao is the urban artifact as it could possibly exist under the material conditions. Yeah. Of the late 20th century. Yeah. Um, so whatever political narrative. But Rossi the urban has, artifact is also a an ideological category designed for those same conditions of the late 20th yeah, century. Yeah. Whatever whatever political narrative Rossi has, and whatever disciplinary argument he makes about theory, about uh, the role of capital A architecture as a transhistorical, you know, human civilizational force. Yeah. Uh, that's all ideology in the sense we were discussing before. There's a material reality in the profession, which is the search for a new client. And the urban artifact, this is something that I've been writing about recently, that like the debate between Rossi and, or like the neo-rationalists and Arcazum was a yep. debate about the relevance of architecture. And it seemed in the 60s, from all the avant-gardist perspectives, even from a dystopian perspective, that architecture was no longer relevant. Right. New technology, commercialization, all this stuff would make the building irrelevant. Right. Where Rossi was trying to like go back to this traditional object that seemed completely anachronistic. Right. Well, the Bilbao effect and the role of private Shows real that, estate that contribution wasn't real. That yeah, demonstrated uh, that in some sense Rossi was right, even if not in the terms, the disciplinary terms that he made the case. Uh, there was a role in political economy for the urban artifact. Absolutely crucial. Yeah. Increased land values. Increased land values. Uh, but also not disconnected from, like, turns out new technologies, blah, 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 and all that stuff also was increased land values. <laughs> like yeah. the titanium clad uh, museum with all of its techno gizmos inside and shit. Like, is the empirical demonstration that this conflict was a non conflict? Well, but, but like ArcaZoom or Super Studio, they thought everyone would get that, that architecture would spread that everywhere 
in an infinite grid of techno infrastructure. It did in, in it did in digital technology, but it didn't in in material terms in through architecture. As we were just saying, like architects did not build housing anymore; they only built the no, museum. They, they built housing. The, the public, the public private, sector, yeah, didn't didn't build uh, yes. housing anymore. It just built the museum. Yeah. Um, so that universalization of value did not happen. Yeah, like I mean, capital A architecture, let's call it that, uh, didn't build housing anymore. It didn't build the uh, universal grid of the capitalist city. Yeah. But that's an comp- entirely conventional decision of what counts and what does not count as capital A architecture because all of the jobs that architects got, I mean, a handful of them built the museums, the architects. All of the other ones built the private sector housing uh, yeah. that the museum was uh, uh, creating the potential for at yeah. an economic level in the city. Uh, these were the architectural jobs, was to produce these, uh, like the mass of architecture jobs was not building museums, was building the private housing that architecture, shh, let's not talk about that one. Let's talk about the museum. Let's not talk about all the housing. But, but, but it is a, it, it's not, not a contradiction. It is a contradiction. And ultimate, at bottom, it's the basic contradiction of capitalism. That you have a tendency towards growth and equalization and a tendency towards accumulation and, and inequality. Yeah. Like you have a tendency to expand the capitalist system and you have a tendency towards uh, uneven development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The infinite grid exists, but it's not a homogenous one. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not a material. It's not a material one. Yeah, it's not. And even even though you're you're totally right, like architects were building housing, they weren't building housing everywhere. They were just building it around the museum. Yeah, like their local. They were uh, building housing for the middle class. Yeah. The working class lived in the estates that were already had already been finished, and they were building no more, and they were degrading because all municipal duties of maintenance were dropped. Um, and therefore their conditions were degrading um, over time. The, the increased disinvestment in the, the public housing rendered, pushed lots of working class people into crappy private rental sector as well uh, over time. And this, I mean, if you live in London today, you know the stark reality of that. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, our architects started working for the middle class, that's it. Uh, so you, I mean, you're right. You're, you're, the architects are not architecting for the the infinite grid. Um, the grid of capitalism exists, but it's a radically uneven, and it doesn't produce kind of a homogenization of the territory. It produces radical, uh, stark yeah. inequalities and differences. Yeah, exactly. And architects are working on one side of that of yeah. those differences. And even architecture, even though it's not the architecture that's published in journals. It's still architecture in a more capital A traditional sense than the architecture of the welfare state yes. and the housing. Yes, it's more aesthetic. Yeah, there's more landscaping. There's more facades. There's more and and all of that is directly connected. In many in many ways, it's the uh, the natural evolution of the discursive explosion of the 1970s. The critical yeah. projects of yeah. the 1970s become these re-aestheticization of architecture. Yeah. 
Yep. They are trying. Exactly. Uh, in fact, if you read if you read it as a historical continuity instead of a, a glorious 70s that for some reason disappeared and everything became post-critical, <laughs> if you read it as a historical continuity, what happened, what changed, what was actually being said, what was the, what were what was the actual economic shift that were happening at the time, and how did it continue? Yep. Um, this becomes fairly clear that the the new avant-garde project of the 70s was a project of re-estheticization, of re-establishing, basically of re-establishing capital A architecture mm-hmm. after architecture had been largely decommodified uh, by the public sector dominance over uh, construction. Yeah, and even even the disciplinary coherence and specificity of architecture had been eroded by its association with engineering uh, and planning. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, lecture by uh, Adorno from 65 called Functionalism Today, where he talks about this. Um, at the same time as there's this concrete need to continue the work of planning, the work of modern architecture with its modern movement architecture with its pragmatic planning focus, there's also, he says, like an increasing pressure to reflect on aesthetics and on the aesthetic character of architecture, which he thinks is important to pursue. And he basically recommends to his architectural audience that they do both, Uh, which, as we know, uh, with hindsight, we might have known at the time (laughs) if we were... You know, Orthodox Marxist rather than uh, Frankfurt School Marxist, that this would not be possible. <laughs> <laughs> and that the contradiction between the two things would be exactly the fundamental uh, shift that architect- the architectural discipline would undertake in the following years. Yep. So, all this is to say that we come to a point uh, in the present moment where that the prominence of real estate, the availability of private clients, uh, driven by this, you know, Bilbao effect type relationship between um, public and private, uh, starts to massively come into crisis uh, in the late 2000s. Obviously, 2008 financial crash, um, and then accelerating through into the COVID pandemic. So all this is, I mean, I think we've talked about before that after 2008 we read a substantial repoliticization of architecture discourse. There's a, there's a change of course away from the post-critical and like an attempted return to the critical and political in architecture discourse. So, uh, you know, we would cite Aravena, we would cite, um, yeah. uh, you know, the way the Biennale has changed in the past, uh, you know, 12 years or whatever. We would, we would, I mean, there's more specific kind of minute examples, but there's an overall uh, sort of revision of architecture culture and an attempted return. It seems clear to us a return to the 70s, yeah. basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but this is the world into which uh, we emerged as academic workers, basically. Uh, and we've always thought that it's it's a good thing, in some sense, repoliticization. But the way that repoliticization can happen as a, as a disciplinary debate about what architecture is in society needs to be fundamentally connected to the professional side, like wh- how architects actually survive in society, who their clients are, 
what the material reality behind that discipline really is. Yeah. And that's what's Yeah, you can't tell what the social function of architecture is if you don't know who's paying it. Who's for paying it. for it, exactly. So whatever politics you wanna say you want as an architect, do you have the client, the social client, to enable that politics, to materialize that politics? And for that to become a disciplinary reality, um, so this is this was the contemporary context of a profound professional crisis met with an attempted disciplinary. And the, the scale is gigantic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the shock of two thousand and eight is the most immediate shock. There's a slight recuperation afterwards, a kind of a stabilization. But in two thousand and uh, between 2008 and 2009, um, so in that year, uh, the um, number of unemployment claims by architects in the UK rose 760% in one year. Now, obviously, this is the immediate shock, and, it, and there's a, a, a period of like normal, slight recovery and normalization. But it's a normalization far below the previous levels. Um, we know numbers from 2015, um, a study by the Greater London Authority, that uh, the number of uh, undergraduate students in architecture in Greater London stayed perfectly stable at around 3,000 um, between 2009 and 2015. The number of architecture jobs in the architecture sector fell from 2010 to 2015, in London, in Greater London, from 22,500 jobs in architecture mm -hmm. in 2010 to 12,200 in 2015. So, like almost 50 percent. Almost 50 percent of architecture jobs disappeared in five years. Um, in the UK as a whole, it shrunk from 62,500 to 49,200 architecture jobs. So it, it affected London more than the UK in general. Uh, but it's, it's a fairly dramatic collapse. That's interesting because uh, from empirical evidence, just from living in London, it seems like a lot of construction is still happening. And I think when we've discussed this before, we sort of assume that London as an international financial investment spot yeah. would yeah. be somewhat insulated. But I guess it would just have higher levels of speculation to collapse. Right. And then it might recover right. a bit more than other places. Uh, I would guess that London recovered more after when we were talking about like after 2015 and right. so on. I, we, we have had a reburst of construction. Um, a rebubble. A rebubble, yes. Um, although I would say that this rebubble was starting around 2011, 2012. Uh, it's where you start seeing these uh, all of these like new uh, gentrifying middle class uh, housing along the railways that we so mm -hmm. so like to talk about <laughs> in what used to be by Victorian planners uh, like green buffer zones to protect housing yeah. neighboring housing areas from the train noise and now they're just building on them the most expensive housing in the area in the worst location that not even Queen Victoria allowed anyone to build there. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, yeah, but I, I, I don't exactly, I, I can't, I don't know enough empirically to understand how in the provinces, uh, 
and in minor cities and etc the, the 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 slump yeah of architectural yeah, exactly. investment is low and yeah it may just mean that it's less it was less speculative in to those territories with, right? to begin with yeah. and therefore less affected by the crisis of the speculative sector right that's what i was thinking too yeah and anyway, this is yeah this is i mean this is the contemporary context in london uh when we were writing this right this yeah. disjuncture disjunction between the um, the number of people in architecture schools including uh where we worked, which actually had increased enrollment over this period, uh, and the decline in actual jobs for such students to go into. Yeah, and this had been this is like this this disconnect is relatively famous. At least people tend to hear about it once they're inside the architecture school. Yeah, like I remember learning when I was a design student at some point. Like, oh, did you know that only fifty percent of graduates of an architecture program go on to work in architecture. Uh, and that is a sobering moment that right. I think pretty much every... You got a 50-50 shot. You got a 50-50 shot, basically. Um, and the job, if you get lucky, the job's going to be terrible. Yeah, there's a strong, <laughs> strong chance that it's just going to be a terrible job. Too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the numbers for graduates who become like stamp-wielding architects... Or like firm partners would be much more five percent. Yeah, yeah. But this is what this is what our article was trying to describe, and it was trying to describe the position this puts the academy in, right? When it can't point to work in the profession as the natural source of value of its degrees. Like it's the schools are selling degrees, right? Yeah. What's the value of the degree? Schools don't sell architecture. They don't, right, exactly. They sell architecture degrees. Right, exactly. So, what's the value of an architecture degree? If there's no architecture. Yeah, traditionally, it's that you can then get a job as an architect. Yes. Uh, if that's not the case, if there's a disconnect between architecture degree and architecture work or architecture production, then what does an architecture degree actually mean? What about it is architecture? What is what is it, what makes it architectural? Uh, and it's in this context that we see theory and discourse and academia itself taking on a greater autonomy and a greater kind of self-reflexive investment. Yeah. Um, and it's particularly clear when schools rely on tuitions that you're dealing with something like. Uh, which they all do now. Which they all do now. You're dealing with something like a multi-level marketing scheme or a Ponzi scheme yes. or a pyramid scheme. Yeah. To use the most architectural yeah. of the... And this is a fundamental dis- difference between what is happening today and what was happening in the 70s. Yeah. In the 70s, you have an explosion of like, quote-unquote, discourse of like uh, the critical project or the project of critique. But the, the historical horizon of that moment was the shift of employment from the public sector to the private sector. Yeah. The, you, um, get, you get a guy like <clears throat> Leon Creer saying, I am an architect, capital A. Right. I'm an architect, therefore I do not build. Right. Right? Right. And then, so he just draws cartoons and makes projects and does theory and teaches in schools. Yeah. But then eventually he gets uh, Prince uh, Prince Charles as his yes. as his client to exactly. do Poundbury. 
Exactly, to do Poundbury. And, but that, that is not fundamentally different from the, the person who succeeded Leon Krier in Diploma 9, uh, in Diploma Unit 9 <laughs> at the AI, uh, Rem Koolhaas, who right. was uh, like writing Delirious New York. And by the way, I also have a kind of a really nice figure here. Between the 1950s and the 1990s, New York City lost 750,000 manufacturing jobs while its land value soared from $20 billion to $400 billion. Right. That's Delirious New York. That's Delirious New York. That, the $400 billion is Delirious New York. It's the explosion of the value of real estate. That's from, that's from Samuel this Stein? This is from uh, Samuel Stein. Right. Yeah, this is uh, Samuel Stein citing Robert Fitch, okay. the assassination of New York right. in Samuel right. Stein's capital city. Yeah, that's delirious. This New is York. what delirious New York is. Yeah, uh, and and then Rem Koolhaas goes on to build all of the museums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and the museums are the critical project because it's funded by the public. All of the private housing around it aren't the critical project. But this is just when you th- realize this, you realize the difference between a critical a neo avant-garde architect and a not critical, not neo avant-garde architect. It's just. A, a class differentiation within the discipline where the aristocracy of the discipline that have access to the prestige clients, clients yeah. of, neoliberal, of the neoliberal state are the critical ones. <laughs> the, the ruling class is portrayed as being the critical one. And the, uh, the ordinary architect that works for some private uh, developer is the not critical one. They, yeah. are, they are the most, the ordinary... I'm not going to say workers, although, of course, most workers are working for those firms. But yeah. anyway, it's yeah, a it, it typical, a typical paradigmatic yeah. uh, reversal of the relationship between class and critique yeah. from yeah. the modern period to the neoliberal period. It is the privileged middle classes that are the vanguard of revolution, obviously. Yeah. The aristocracy of the profession as the revolutionary subject. All right, we're going to make that the end of part one. We're splitting this into two parts. Uh, yeah, we found that we end up just speaking for two hours inevitably. Or more. Like I, this, this, this one in total is <laughs> close to three or something. Yeah, uh, it's the same thing as the line. We were planning for one episode. Yeah. Uh, we th- like episodes we think are, should be between like 45 minutes to one 15, one hour 15 tops. And then we end, always end up being way too long and we end up having two episodes in one. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to, the second part will be out next week. Um, in it, we're going to finish our discussion of this uh, censored paper. And <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to cover uh, some of the some of the funnier elements of it. Like yeah, we, the, we we you used some concrete examples of recent publications uh, yeah. as a setup for what how how the discipline talks about the problem, and, yeah. uh, and like confronts its own problem. Uh, but um, yeah, it's gonna so it's gonna be more lighthearted stuff, I guess. Yeah, we had some serious stuff to talk about this episode, uh, but we'll be back to more typical material next time. Dissing stupid shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we also wanted to uh, talk about pa- Patreon. Yes, uh, we are starting a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I mean, the, the obvious trigger is that I was fired and I'm fucking poor. But uh, <laughs> but we actually want to invest in this as an independent platform. Um, yeah, and we have some other ideas about creating a platform to publish uh, written material that's a bit more in-depth yeah. than the podcast episodes and maybe a bit more kind of academic-ish. Yeah, our line of thinking is we are talking about this like the content that we bring to the platform, to the podcast, as a um, more like relaxed discussion on the material. Like, there's actually mm-hmm. a lot of material that could easily convert it into a proper academic paper. So yeah. we can do written versions of of this stuff. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna get into we're gonna launch the Patreon uh, next week, and we're gonna yeah. have more details on what we're gonna do with it and on that uh, written platform too. Yeah. So. Um, Tune in for part two next week. Yep. I'll see you then. Later. Later.